Hi, everyone. Welcome to ABC's of Anesthesia. And today I have Ruth. Now, Ruth is one of our operations managers, really. So she runs a lot of the organization for the med student and other tutorials with ABC's of Anesthesia. Welcome, Ruth. How are you going? Great. Thank you so much for having me, Lahiru. No, it's great. Look, um, you did a bit of work on just looking at, uh, uh, looking on researching about rapid sequence inductions. You're in your, you're about to go into your quick care year. And I thought this would be, you know, a great time that we could chat about rapid sequence induction and just, um, really go through all the basics and also share some experience as well. Um, yeah, so what, what do you reckon? Why, why are we covering RSI? Like what, what do you know about it? Yeah, well, I guess as a junior doctor, RSI, it's something I'd only really seen being done in the emergency department, you know, often really high acuity situations. And, you know, you want to get in and ask questions, but you're always trying to find that balance of, you know, asking at the right time. So, yeah, I guess I, I wanted to do a bit more research into RSI and, you know, get a bit more understanding of why it's done, when is it used, and what are the steps involved and risks and benefits for the patient. Fantastic. So we'll go through why it's done, when it's used, what are the steps, risks and benefits. And it's amazing. It's actually interesting you say it's always done in ED in a high acuity situation and often it's done in anesthesia in a high acuity situation. And you'll go, and when we go through it, we'll kind of outline the fact that this is a little bit, you know, risky because essentially we're giving these predetermined doses, which have lots of risk with them, in some of the most unstable patients. So yeah, rapid sequence inductions innately are more high risk than other inductions for a number of reasons. Um, so what does RSI or rapid sequence induction mean and why do we do it? And I guess what are some examples that you've seen? Mm. So I guess the, the goal of rapid sequence induction is to minimize the time of an unprotected airway. So you want that immediate um, unresponsiveness, so the induction um, component, and then muscular relaxation, so administering your neuromuscular blockade. So from my reading, the classic RSI, um, you know, you give your IV induction medication followed by um, your you know, rapid neuromuscular blockade with cricoid pressure, and then you go on to intubate, um, you know, in rapid succession to prevent any aspiration. And, you know, this, from, from what I've been reading, this has been out since the 1970s is when this method was first described. But now, you know, with new technology, medications, um, change in practice, this has now evolved and there's certainly, um, you know, different approaches to this technique as well. Um, so I guess that a particular situation where I've seen RSI, you know, is in the emergency department resus uh, situation. You've got an, un, a presumed unfasted patient, um, you know, in a peri-arrest situation. And so really, you know, you want anesthetics, ICU, ED, all involved, um, you know, working together to kind of intubate as quickly as possible and minimise the risk of aspiration. Yeah. And as we'll go through later, like, you know, it, it is, it feels unusual because every rapid sequence induction now is different to the described technique previously, whereas literally predetermined versus thiopentone, you don't even wait for the patient to be unconscious. You just give the succinopenium again at a predetermined dose. And yet, you know, as soon as you see those fascicolations end, then you put the, um, you know, you intubate the patient with cricot on without any ventilation, unlike normal inductions where you paralyze the patient and there's a, probably a longer time, not that 30 second window, and you're ventilating them, making sure they don't become hypoxemic you know, you're trying to do all these things to prevent aspiration. Um, but yeah, you, like literally all, all you need is your anesthetic nurse and the airway, airway manager, and it could be ICU, ED or, you know, or anesthetics. Um, so what, uh, yeah, what are the ideal induction agents um, for rapid induction? 
Yeah, well, as I was doing some research, I was like, you know, what is the number one choice? And there doesn't seem to be a number one choice, unfortunately, but um, there's certainly different properties that you would like your induction agent to have. So you want your patient to become um, as, you know, quickly unconscious, unresponsive and amnestic. You want it to have some analgesic properties. Um, you know, in doing this, you want to try and maintain their hemodynamics um, and cerebral perfusion pressure as much as possible ideally be immediately reversible as well. So, um, you know, if things aren't going to plan, you can reverse the effects as quickly as possible and also have minimal side effects um, to the patient as well. So they're the kind of, you know, ideal things, but there is no no one perfect agent out there. That's right. I'm thinking, you know, the was essentially what we're really trying to do is just get the fastest agents and pretty much all our induction agents are fast really now. But, you know, propofol and thiopentone, you know, they essentially can really create hemodynamic problems and hypotension in any patient, let alone someone who's, you know, got, you know, an emergency patient with, you know, blood loss and other problems. And, you know, and then the other drugs like ketamine is pretty stable, but it doesn't, um, it, it, it can definitely drop the blood pressure, but it has direct negative inotropic effects. There's a drug called Etomidate. I don't know if you've heard of that one. No. Yeah, vaguely in reading, but doesn't seem to be used much in Australia. Is that right? Yeah, not used in Australia, but used in many other countries, used in New Zealand. So yeah. in our exams, we have to learn Atomidate because it's a New Zealand and Australian exam. Uh, it's available in New Zealand, but yeah, just not available in Australia. There's some, there's, there's, there's evidence that, uh, in sick patients, it has a anti, uh, it, it um, decreases corticosteroid production, which can have, uh, effects and, you know, long-term morbidity and mortality for patients, especially these sick patients. So. Yeah, we don't we don't have that in Australia. Um, so, what are the drugs that we use when performing RSI? Um, yeah, and let's go through some kind of the areas of contention and what things off, people often swap in for other uh, for parts of these methods. Yeah, so the the traditional method, the one that was kind of first described in the 1970s, that's your thiopentone, succimethonium. You do your cricoidal, also known as Celix maneuver, um, and then go on to intubate the patient. So that's your traditional method. Um, and, yeah. with, and without any ventilations as well. Yep. Uh, yeah. Um, and I guess, you know, going away from that technique with, you know, new drugs, particularly propofol, um, you know, researched into RSI and, you know, looking at the actual risks of aspiration with, you know, minor changes to the techniques as well. So that's kind of why uh, I guess have gone away from that traditional approach. Um, would you would you agree with that, Lahiru? Yeah, I mean, I think ev- so. Every single person that I've ever seen doing an RSI these days is not doing the traditional approach. Mainly because even if you're using thiopentone, which I've early in my training we'd use it occasionally, you st- we still wait until the patient is asleep or has you know eyes closed, so they're hypnotized, just so that um, you know we're absolutely guaranteed of the fact that. Uh, the patient isn't giving muscle, given muscle relaxant, uh, and they have any kind of recollection of this. So we'd always do it out of, outside of the traditional sequence. And these days, you know, thiopentone is actually, you know, out of production. I think, I feel like there's it, it, over time because so few people use it, it's been in and out of production. So we really just use propofol, which is totally fine for this. The only difference with propofol, if you ever use thiopentone, there's a really definitive endpoint. So you give your determined dose of thiopentone, and at a certain point, 30 seconds later, eyes close and that's it. Whereas with pro- propofol, you give the amount, 
and the eyes kind of, you know, the blinking, patients kind of in and out, and then they shut their eyes. And so that's often you know, kind of the difference of profile. And yeah, we use rocuronium and succinamethone interchangeably, you know, 1.2 milligrams per kilogram rocuronium. There was a study that showed that that is marginally faster than succinamethone. Like there's one study, I think, that showed that it was maybe a few seconds or a fraction of a second faster than sucks, but sucks gives you those fasciculations. You know when the patient's ready without having to time anything or without having to use a nerve twitcher, you know, a single twitch counts to show the degradation of, um, yeah, of your, of your, um, adductor pollicis muscle, uh, musculoskeletal function. Um, yes, yeah, so that's kind of where most people go. And, you know, these days, I, when you're in emergency, did you see people put cricoid pressure on? No, I didn't actually. So I don't, yeah. I've actually seen that done and in reading it does seem like a tricky skill to kind of master to know exactly how much pressure to apply to make sure you know you're not making it more challenging for the airway operator as well. Yeah, actually let's go through some of these other areas of contention. So I think we've talked about um the induction agent. How, what do you know about ketamine? Like what's that as an agent? Yeah, so I guess I've heard ketamine being used as kind of in modified sequence induction. So, um, you know, if you've got a delayed, delayed sequence induction, delayed sequence induction, sorry. Um, so, you know, giving the ketamine first, particularly in a, um, you know, critically unwell patient or if they've got, you know, significant cardiovascular disease to then reduce the amount of induction agent, um, that you need to give. Um, so that's kind of the main area that I've seen, um, ketamine used. And and we can absolutely still use it for rapid sequence induction without having any of that delay. It's a really fast-acting agent, maybe marginally slower than the other agents. But it, again, it's hard to know when the patient is unconscious because the eyes might still be open. And often we just give that a, a reasonable dose, like one to two milligrams per kilogram, definitely less in patients who are hemodynamically unstable, you know, if they've got lots of blood loss or very, uh, very, um, you know, fragile hearts. Um, and then, yeah, we kind of just time it and go, yeah, that's that's about right. But I often combine ketamine with midazolam. So I've got that very Im- immediate amnestic effect of, you know, three to even five milligrams of midazolam and ketamine together, totally hemodynamically stable in most situations. Plus you're running aramine or meraminol as a vasopressor or ephedrine as an inotrope. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it, it is fantastic for, for these really sick patients. And I'd use it regularly for emergency cases. Like people do say it's extremely cardiostable, but take any incredibly sick patient and because it has a indirect positive, you know, inotropic effect through sympathetic stimulation centrally, but a direct negative inotropic effect, sometimes you get, if, if the patient's already maximally sympathetically stimulated, like someone who has, you know, incredible amounts of bottle loss, then you can't really increase the indirect effect. So it's all direct effects and therefore you get this, um, you know, hypertension anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about um, the choice of, I think we've gone through the choice of relaxing, you know, succinamethonium. Yeah. Like what, what do you think of, like if you saw this drug just with all the side effects, like what do you, what do you think of that? Like just using it seems a bit unusual, right? With so many side effects. What, what, what do you think of that? In in regards to succinamethonium side effect profile? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess, you know, I guess with any drug you give, there's always a risk of adverse reactions. Um, and I guess it's, 
you know, operator dependent and also what you've got available in that situation. Mm. Um, I don't know, in your experience, that kind of slightly quicker onset of action of succimethonium, does, does that have much benefit over rocuronium in your experience? Only because the, yeah, the, 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 you know, that study that showed that rocuronium can be marginally quicker, but again, mm. you have to use your nerve twitcher versus the sucks causing fasciculation. So you have a visual endpoint to when you, you, you know, your patient is paralyzed. But I just don't see it as a problem. Like, you know, what's the difference between intubating one second or two seconds faster or slower? Like, it, it, it does, I don't think it's clinically significant. But mm. there's an advantage of rocuronium in that, you know, you give that drug and you don't have to give a further drug. So you're exposing them to one drug for paralysis, which may or may not be a benefit in that particular patient. Some people think of uh, rocuronium as a better agent because um, you can reverse it in, in, in some, if there's some level of a difficult airway. But I don't think that's a really great, uh, you know, you have to give, you know, after the intubating dose of rocuronium, you give 16 milligrams per kilogram of Sugamidex and you can reverse rocuronium. But you know, there's no guarantee if you couldn't gain the airway that you'll still be able to gain the airway because they've already had a big dose of propofol or hypnotic, which is also rendering them apneic. Mm. So it's not that, you know, that doesn't save save the situation necessarily. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think I just use them interchangeably. And if I think I'm going to need further paralysis, I'll probably use rocuronium. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of how I see it. But yeah, the side effects... There's so many side effects like, um, you know, hyperkalemia. You get that, you know, increased um, potassium with succinylamine. So you really have to watch out in burns patients, patients with extrajunctional receptors, end-stage renal failure. Any sick patient, I always check that potassium before giving it. You know, you could get sucks apnea rarely, malignant hypothermia rarely. Um, it's second dose of sucks often gives a severe bradycardia. And, you know, I've definitely seen people arrest on the second dose of of succinylamine. Um, and then a few other things like increased intragastric, intraocular, intracranial pressure, but these aren't necessarily clinically significant either. What do you think about cricoid pressure? Mm. Yeah, like as I was touching on before, it seems something that's quite difficult to learn how to do correctly. Mm. Um, so I guess in the traditional RSI, you you know work up to giving that thirty newtons of um, cricoid pressure, which is roughly about three kilos. And I was reading that you can actually, you know, um, recreate that by compressing air in a 20 mil syringe from 20 to 12 mils. So I guess that's one way you can try and practice your cricoid pressure and know how much force to give. But the problem is if you're doing too much force, you can then obstruct the airway and make intubation, um, more difficult for the, um, airway operator. So I guess the thing, um, the takeaway thing is if, you know, it's not working to consider takeaway cricoid early to kind of try and give yourself a better view of your airway. Yeah, that's. Ex- I think that's exactly my thoughts. I think it's it's a pretty ingenious thing. I imagine when you know Selick first described this maneuver, like it, it's quite an ingenious thing to think that I can make this you know cricoid ring obstruct the esophagus and prevent this life threatening complication. And they've done MRI studies or I can't remember which imaging process they did to show that done right. It absolutely prevents reflux of, you know, gastric contents a lot of the time or significantly. But the problem is, yeah, it's to actually do it, you know, to train people to do it in the right way with the right pressure and make sure that that, you know, cricoid cartilage is overlying the esophagus, um, have the, yeah, have the right pressure on. Um, there's, there's all these ways that it doesn't actually, 
um, yeah, the the actual efficacy in clinic is not necessarily. Clin- there's no real clinical evidence that it works, as well as um, the fact that yeah, like you mentioned, it, you know, making the airway harder, and that's a definite thing. Like if you put cricoid pressure on, your airway is almost always more difficult. So if there's definite evidence of difficulty and not that much evidence of benefit, a lot of departments out there. Um, I remember the first one, I think one of the hospitals locally just said in the emergencies, we're not doing cricoid anymore. That's out. And it just, it just became a thing that people do, didn't do. And I think pretty much there's a few countries around the world that, you know, they routinely do not do cricoid, whereas Australia traditionally did cricoid all the time. And it was, you know, it's a really big thing that we, um, yeah, we managed every RSI with cricoid. In my experience, if the trainee wants to put cricoid on, I say, yeah, put it on, but have a very low threshold to take it off. And do I use cricoid? Usually not. And I think if I do use cricoid, I do it just to help train my assistants that it's okay to take it off. So I might use it and say, oh, cricoid off, please. And it will be quite alarming because that's something they've been taught as a, you cannot take it off until the airway is secure. And so I'm doing it as kind of education that look, if the airway is not good, this is totally fine to take away because it's far worse to have a, have a bad airway. Yeah. Um, how about peri-induction oxy- oxygenation? Like what are the, what are the methods that, you know, you, you've seen used and described and yeah. What do, what do you reckon? Hmm. I think the uh, main method I've seen used is just with a, um, like a non-rebreather face mask, you know, maximum flow, 15 litres going. Um, and I guess, you know, it's, it's again that balance between oxygenate, oxygenating the patient and the risk of aspiration. Um, so I guess you don't, in regards to um, any kind of, you know, bag valve mask, mechanical kind of ventilation during this period. Um, but, you know, with the introduction of high flow now, um, I, I imagine that could be used for the, um, mm. oxygenation period as well mm. absolutely yes i mean at the moment in theater we just get the face mask on and it's got a good seal we give you know or sometimes i'll give 15 liters to patients just to get that oxygen in and get the entitled o2 above 80 percent. so they're really well pre-oxygenated sometimes i use psv pro for pressure support ventilation as well that's what we often do in theater but yeah, yeah you're right like in ed if you're waiting you may just hold the liddell bag on or have High flow nasal oxygenation, like with the OptiFlow Thrive, fantastic way of having constant, you know, you know, having a patient not desaturate. But essentially, the the the, th- the thought was we're not ventilating the patient because ventilating the patient could inflate the stomach, which increases the stomach pressure, which then causes aspiration. And my thoughts are: look, I I, I would routinely use gentle bag bag mask ventilation. So just making sure I'm not going above 15 centimeters water pressure, which is the lower esophageal sphincter pressure, just gently bagging. And that way, most of the time I can bag the patient gently. So first of all, I'm oxygenating the patient. And second of all, I know that I can bag mask the patient. So I'm very comfortable if that if this is a difficult intubation, I've got that bag mask handy. And look, you know, if I couldn't bag mask the patient, I probably wouldn't persist at it because after 30 seconds, I'm going to intubate anyway. So I think gentle bag masking provides me a lot of good information and keeps the patient from have, be, becoming hypoxemic in a high-risk induction. I just I just think that that's a really useful thing. Hmm. Oh, yeah, and I think you mentioned here in the notes as well, pa- patient supine versus head up. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, optimally, 
you want them kind of in the in the sniffing position, really. Um, I guess that's more for your your intubation side of the RSI. Um, but I guess you know, supine versus head up. You know, you're thinking, can I improve oxygenation by having the patient sit up and prevent aspiration? But looking at the research in this area, they haven't actually shown any benefits in doing that, and actually worse views um, on laryngos- laryngoscopy. Um, of the patient sitting up. So I imagine the optimal position would be, um, you know, patient supine, but with in the, in the sniffing position with the head of the bed elevated to about 30 degrees or so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like I, I've never had the patient fully head up, but yeah, I'd definitely have them ramped to, to yeah. whatever their airway was best. And I think that's really, it's one of those things that it feels obvious that, you know, things don't go against gravity so if the patient's lying down, if they're going to aspirate because of a you know weak sphincter, it's going to happen supine. But it's very hard for fluid to move up a gradient against gravity. So and and it makes sense for the airway as well. Um, actually, what 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 kind of evidence did you find about um uh, giving oxygen during the apneic period, the end hour trial? Yeah. So um, the end hour trial. So. That was so use. Uh, so the emergency department use of apneic oxygenation versus usual care during rapid sequence induction, and this was a randomised uh, controlled trial done in the US. And essentially, um, they this was done in 2017, and it showed no difference between the lowest uh, mean oxygen sats with supplemental oxygen uh, during the apneic period, and that compared to not giving any oxygen at all. Wow, that really surprises me. Actually, the fact that they they must have really great operators because you just think it's a time thing. If people are taking longer to do the intubation, then without supplemental oxygen, it's you know they're just going to have less time. But potentially with enough good preoxygenation, this won't be a problem. But I can imagine in obese patients, patients with high mo- high basal metabolic rate, um, any issues with preoxygenation, suddenly that apneic time is going to be lower. So I, I do wonder what I do wonder what that sample size and what the population. Uh, was you know was showing with that. Hmm. Let's go through the steps. We covered RSI and kind of the why you do it and what the method is. So, what are the different methods of uh, what? Yeah, let's go through the steps of that kind of an RSI. So, what what are the things to consider? So, I guess beforehand, before you're even uh, performing RSI, thinking about um, you know the patient, what position you want them in, pre-oxygenate pre-oxygenation, how are you going to do that? Uh, making sure you've got all your equipment nearby. So um, like your anesthetic machine, if, you, if you're in theatre and that's all working, um, all the medications you're going to need, appropriate monitoring um, and all your intubating equipment as well. Oh, yeah, this is the 4Ms checklist. I love this machine. Med- <laughs> Stolen uh, from you there. <laughs> yeah, nice. And depending on where the RSI is going to take place, whether you're in, you know, ED resource or you're in theatre, um, you want to make sure you've got, you know, the right team there. So I guess for ED resource situation that um, I've seen, you know, you have your team leader, your airway operator and their assistant, um, someone to do drugs, someone to scribe. And then if you're going to go with cricoid, someone to apply the pressure there. Oh yeah, uh, with that team, sometimes, like especially in the really tricky RSIs where there's some other problem with the patient, and there's usually hemodynamic, hemodynamic instability. That drug administrator is often a senior doctor, you know, who's uh, looking at looking at that heart line, blood pressure, heart rate, everything, and just going, "Oh, yep, I need to give metramin. I need to give ephedrine now." Um, so, you know, sometimes you just want in that tricky period someone on the airway, and that's fully their task focus. 
someone on the drugs and that's their task focus and often they might be the leader as well or you know having a separate leader yeah and then um i guess with any kind of procedure and a high acuity situation you want to make sure you've communicated things to the rest of your team and that everyone knows this is going to be plan a plan b plan c um this is when we're going to change over operators if that's something you're going to do um as well excellent um yeah so then the traditional approach yeah let's just let's just run through that uh, so traditional, firstly, popping the nasogastric in to kind of aspirate any stomach oh, contents was what I read. So yeah. yeah there's, there's actually a, a ruling, like a Australian legal ruling, that if there's a nasogastric, it was, it was when a patient did aspir, aspirated on induction. So the ruling was if there wasn't a nasogastric already inside you, you wouldn't necessarily put it in for the RSI. But if there's already one in place, you get one of those big, 60 mil syringes and aspirate on the end of it to you know relieve whatever there is so if there is one in aspirate it if there isn't you you generally don't need to or there's you know there's often no specific clinical need to put one in yeah okay right um so i guess if you've got one in you'd aspirate otherwise um you'd move straight on to positioning the patient correctly. So in the uh, sniffing position, so you've got neck flexion at 35 degrees and um, face plane extension at 15 degrees. If you've got a patient with a bigger BMI, you might consider putting in a wedge underneath their shoulders just so you can get their sternum kind of at the same line uh, level at their tragus or angle of the jaw. Um, you, you know, make sure all your equipment's working, you've got suction ready to go, you've got all your monitoring attached, um, start pre-oxygenating your patient. So as you, um, we're talking about before with that tight-fitting mask, 15 litres, um, and really for about three or five minutes or so until you get your end tidal oxygen above 85%. Um, and so from there, if you're going to use cricoid, that's where you then start. So slowly applying 10 newtons of pressure, you give your induction agent and then quickly your neuromuscular blockade. And then at that point, you'd increase the cricoid to about 30 newtons when the patient um, fully loses consciousness. And then you'd be, go on to intubate. So in this situation, say you're using succimethonium 30 to 45 seconds after that's been given or when the fasciculations end you know, 45 to 60 seconds roughly if you're going to um, use rock. And then once you've got your tube in, inflating the cuff and confirming position with making sure the tube's fogging, equal chest rise and fall, you've got your entitled trace and you've auscultated both sides of the chest. And then, and then once the tube's in position, it's at that point that you would then remove your cricoid. Yeah, fantastic. And that's you know, that's exactly what most people would do with um, a rapid six induction. And it's interesting, um, uh, so I'm, I'm a big fan of listening to every chest unit. Check the fogging, check the rise and fall of the chest. At that same time, you're then auscultating. I first auscultate the stomach region and then both sides of the chest. And the reason I do that is if you auscultate, you know, say, let's say someone did an endo, uh, endosophageal intubation, if, and so they're in, essentially insufflating the stomach. If you were to then listen to both lungs, that sound of the stomach transmitting through the lungs sounds like brilliant equal air entry in many patients mm -hmm. and so i always listen to the stomach first where you'll often hear gurgling sounds if uh, it's if it's down there if it's down the wrong wrong pathway and then i auscultate the lungs so that can you know the absence of sound in the stomach confirms no esophageal intubation and then i listen to both axilla and i know this is not something that most people do but i've just seen a critical incident happen because that didn't happen i remember one of my consultants back in the day was fantastic about this. Like, you know, I remember 
he just drilled into me that every single intubation, you do these steps, check for fogging, check then you, you know, um, stethoscope on, stomach, axilla left, axilla right. Then you look up and the end tidal CO2 is now present. So you haven't wasted any time. You've got lots of good information and you've confirmed it's in and you've listened to the lungs uh, the first time they've been intubated. So the first sign of bronchospasm will be that first listen and you'll be able to get onto it so quickly, unlike if you didn't auscultate the lungs. So really big fan of such a you know, simple, non-invasive step with so much benefit. Hey, so I thought we might run through these, like there's definitely a few different scenarios and yeah, I, th- I thought I might just give my experience of these. So yeah, often, definitely. Often you just have a really shocked patient you know, massive blood loss, the peri-arrest. And often because there's, they, they may have limited levels of consciousness, you don't need to give too much medication. So think of, you know, this could range from the, the motor vehicle accident or splenic rupture or PPH where they've lost three, four liters of blood and you're just pumping in fluid and blood while you need to get them to theater. Um, to give the normal dose of say, you know, one or even two mill, you know, two milligrams per kilogram profile, that could be a, a dose that completely arrests this patient. So we have to be really careful. So the options you have then are to do, first of all, make sure you're fluid running, make sure you're in theater with all your you know, usual staff, staff and supports and hands. But the agents you have are you know, ketamine at a lower dose. And often I'd give, again, depending on the situation, this is, don't, you know, definitely get your uh, supervisor's advice and uh, your team's advice. And this is just general advice. The ketamine at a low dose, often you know anywhere from 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram. I might even just give them a Dazlan and succinthonium sometimes. Other times I might give it a tiny bit of propofol, like you know one to two mils of propofol, maybe all you need in an elderly patient with um, substantial blood loss. Um, and all the time I'm, I'm, I've got uh, ephedrine ready for positive inotropy and metaraminol ready for as a vasopressor. So a lot of things in place to make sure that shock patients don't um, arrest. And we touched a little bit about um, patients with significant cardiovascular disease and how you'd modify RSI for them. Mm. What would you do, um, yeah, for a patient that's critically unwell, significant cardiovascular disease? How would you approach that situation? Yeah, so this is another. I've actually got a video on the critical cardiac, uh, the critical inductions that are cardiovascularly relevant. Um, there's probably a couple of videos on on YouTube for that. Um, but essentially, in these patients, they, they let, let's take the the worst is like cardiomyopathy patient with an injection fraction of like ten or fifteen percent. You really want to try and maintain normality for everything. So the way I'd approach that for a rapid sequence induction, actually, the way I'd approach it for any elective induction, um, and I'd, I'd prioritize the cardiovascular status over the aspiration risk because that's where most of the mortality is going to be. So. I would absolutely give a large dose of, um, uh, of um, say, something like fentanyl, which is generally thought to be more cardio-stable than giving more rapidly acting agents like remifentanil or alfentanil. So I'd do that. I'd give midazolam. I'd have ephedrine and metaraminol running. And again, I'd titrate really low doses of other agents. It could be a bit of profile, a bit of midazolam. And the difference between this versus the shock patient is the fact that I'm, you know, trying to avoid that tachycardia in this patient, whereas I don't really care about the tachycardia in the shock patient because I really want that sympathetic drive to be maintained. So I might give a bit of fentanyl in a shock patient, but sorry, in a hypervolemic shock patient, but not, but, but I'll, but I won't really um, give massive doses of fentanyl, unlike with a cardiovascular disease, um, yeah, cardiomyopathy patient. 
yeah, I'm really just trying to avoid the tachycardia, which then increases the amount of myocardial oxygen demand and then decreases supply because now the diastolic filling time and the diastolic um, is time for the coronary artery blood supply or flow to the flow to the um, heart is now decreased. Yeah. Mm. And what about, say, you have a situation where patients coming with head trauma, that they're hemodynamically stable, but um, you know, need to be intubated quickly. How would, how would you modify uh, for that situation? Yeah, so head traumas can, can be quite tricky. So there's a particular kind of, let, let's, let's take the trickiest induction, which would be an unstable, unclipped subarachnoid hemorrhage. So not exactly head trauma, but this is, this is where any sharp rise in blood pressure, which increases this transmural pressure gradient, which is the pressure across the mural, meaning the wall of the vessel. If the blood pressure goes up or the intracranial pressure suddenly goes down, you now have a risk of re-rupture. And with rupture, uh, there's like a 50 to 70% mortality straight on that, that event happening. So I really, really want to prevent the spikes in blood pressure more so than I care about the, you know, say causing a bit of hypotension, hypotension that I can then treat. So you think of this patient, say a 50 year old female, subarachnoid hemorrhage, unclipped needs to go for clipping. I would probably give a decent dose of profile, so, you know, anywhere from one to two milligrams per kilogram. Um, and I'd give a fast acting relaxant like rocuronium. Um, and I'd give, um, you know, I'd give a decent dose of something like alfentanil or I'll be running remifentanil uh, for really good uh, sympathetic ablation to laryngoscopy. And I'd have another drug ready. I might have fentolamine, which is an alpha blocker, or esmolol, which is a you know, rapid-acting uh, beta blocker, to just prevent that, you know, just having something extra to prevent that spike in blood pressure. Um, yeah, so there's, again, a whole series of ways, like, for example, with alfentanil, probably give 10 to 20 mics per kilo, look for that bradycardia, same with Remy, have it running at, you know, start with 0.05, while you're getting things ready, mics per kilo per minute, that is, then you can increase to 0.2 mics per kilo per minute. Um, or if you're using a nanogram spill for TCI methods, you might start at you know, one to two and then increase to maybe four. Um, and, and you're looking for that bradycardia. You're looking for that sign that this patient has that, you know, has that analgesia working. And I think the extra thing that people don't realize is not, not necessarily how much or the type of analgesia you give, but you try to make your laryngoscopy as gentle as possible. And so if you're really sticking that tip into the molecular, you're going to get some incredible blood pressure spikes. But if you use a video laryngoscope and use very as gentle pressure as possible, it's a lot easier to minimize those hyper, hypertensive episodes. So um, that's basically what I do for those uh, subarach cases. And if it's, if it is head injury, it's kind of similar. Like I, I just want to maintain hemodynamic stability. So, you know, I, again, I probably care more about having, uh, you know, having a little bit of blood pressure drop over a small period of time is probably not as bad as having a sudden blood pressure spike. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, prevent a sharp rise in int- intracranial pressure. Um, and there's always that dilemma of, you know, you've got a patient who's bleeding out uh, and you've got a tight brain, you need to yeah, have hypotensive resuscitation, but also you need to perfuse the brain. So I need to, you know, make sure my blood pressure is perfusing the brain as well. So very tricky situation. You'd absolutely be managing this with an experienced clinician. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, and your fi- final example we're going to touch on, um, so a preeclamptic patient who's going for an emergency seizure. How mm. would you 
yeah, modify your RSI for this situation? This is actually really tricky. So in a patient who's, let's say, a straight cesarean section for a GA Caesar, so baby you know, has some, some level of problem um, and you need to do a GA, you can often just do this cesarean section by giving a big dose of profile, avoid opioids because then nothing gets to the baby. Um, and that way the baby hopefully comes out not as flat as if the, you, if you gave alfentanil or something else. So that's, that's probably a method we've used for just a cesarean section. Don't worry about that. Your, your, your patient becoming tachycardic as long as they're hip, you know, am, amnestic, it won't be a problem. And young female patients can often tolerate tachycardia because these patients don't have the cardiac problem or the cardiac disease that other patients do. Um, that other patients might. Um, but if you've got a preeclamptic patient, it's kind of the same thing. The, the mortality of preeclampsia is, some people would say it's the seizures, but it's actually intracranial hemorrhage because your vessels are essentially not normal vessels and you've got hypertension. And what this means is that you get, you've got this, you know, incredibly high risk of intracranial hemorrhage. And so I would, I would approach it similarly. I would absolutely give an opioid in this situation and it's probably alfentanil. And I might want to chase that again with a beta blocker or phentolamine or, you know, lignocaine or something just to try and avoid that. And again, gentle laryngoscopy. You'll always have pediatrics or experienced experience midwife there um, after delivery of the baby because you know the baby's going to come out a bit flat and they'll, they'll potentially need resuscitation as well. Um, but I'd approach the preeclamptic patient very similarly to the subrac patient. Interesting. Mm. Well, that, um, mm. We've finished up now, but um, that was really interesting and certainly, yeah, really good to have your insight there into how you'd approach different situations. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I hope that now anyone listening or you, you're seeing a situation like this in whatever area of the hospital you're in, you have a bit more of an understanding and then um, to know a bit about what's going on and, and why, you know, certain things are being done and for what reason. And, and really, God, thank you. You've done a great amount of research on this. So in the show notes to this, we'll put the references uh, to, you know, to really, really good articles and life in the fast lane, you know, just a fantastic website. I get so much great anesthetic and quick care information from there. Um, and so, yeah, uh, we will, uh, probably sign off there and, uh, thanks so much for yeah, doing this podcast. Awesome. Thanks so much, Lahiri. No worries. So, yep, everyone, thanks very much for listening and watching on YouTube. So, yep, share with anyone who might be interested and we'll see you guys all next time. Bye.